Good evening. Let's do that again. Good evening. <laughs> wow, what a day. Yeah. Who is, so I'd like to welcome everyone here and welcome back those of you who've been with us uh, since the beginning. Let's begin with a show of hands of everyone who was here last night for Professor Burnham's keynote address. Oh, wow. Okay, now keep those hands held. Now, I'd like to ask everyone who's been with us throughout the day at any point to raise your hands. All right. Now, if you are presenting, or keep the hands held. Okay. Now, if you've been presenting or moderating any part of this experience, I'd like you to stand. No pressure. Come on. Keep the hands held and stand. Well, if you're standing, you don't have to hold your hands, I guess. Now I'd like to take a moment just to look around the room at everyone who's around you. Look at this community that we've built together in such a short amount of time. I'd like to take a, let, let's just give ourselves a round of applause. Okay, you all can sit back down. You can sit back down. <laughs> so I think the strangers that you met yesterday, you'll leave as new friends and colleagues when you take out of here tomorrow. Now, you know an event of this magnitude takes the effort and energy of so many. David did a great job of listing all of those individuals last night, but I would like to once more lift up all of our speakers who've taken the time from their busy schedules to be here with us and to share their work, many of whom who've flown in from all over the U.S., some like uh, Mr. Sheraldi, who's speaking tonight, like literally just arrived. Um, I'd also like to thank all of the staff and the volunteers who've worked tirelessly to make this experience seamless. Our partners at University of St. Thomas, our underwriters, and the many who I've not listed who are in the programs. I'd like to especially lift up writers in the schools and the young poets who we've been hearing from. Uh, and let's give them a round of applause too. So in this short amount of time together, we've covered a lot of ground. And I don't know about you, but I've gained incredible insight into the multifaceted realities of the criminal justice system through the lenses of so many perspectives, artists, activists, academicians, advocates, people impacted by, working for, and fighting against the system. I think together we've begun to peel some of the labels of us and them that separate us. And perhaps we're now seeing through a new lens of we as fellow human brothers and sisters. We often talk about the Rothko Chapel as having two vocations, contemplation and action. So now we begin our pivot from better understanding and contemplating this very complex system to uncovering the opportunities for change, for action. Tonight's second keynote address will be doing just that. And that conversation will carry over into the three remaining sessions tomorrow. So before we get started, I have just a little bit of housekeeping. Please take a moment to turn off your cell phones and save your photography for outside. We are documenting this entire experience and we'll have that available on our website for you all later. So don't worry, you're not missing anything. Now we're gonna have a short period at the, the very end uh, for you all to ask questions and have Mr. Sheraldi answer those. And then we're gonna resume on the plaza uh, for a reception. Now I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Roberto Lacara, who I've had the good fortune of working alongside of and getting to know these 
these last many months as we've been planning the symposium. He is the founding chair and associate professor of criminology, law, and society at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. His areas of research and teaching include youth and prison, gangs, juvenile justice system, prison reform, antisocial behavior, and inmate reentry and recidivism. So I cannot think of a better person to introduce our keynote speaker tonight. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lakara. Thank you, Ashley. And I'm very excited, uh, Vincent, to meet you and, and introduce you. Uh, this has been a, a special two days, and we even have one more day after. Uh, and I'm very excited. Vincent Schiraldi is a senior research fellow directing the program in criminal justice policy and management at Harvard's infamous Kennedy School. Chiraldi comes to Houston with long experience in public life, first coming to prominence as a founder of the policy think tank, the Justice Policy Institute, then moving to government as director of the Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C., and then as commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation. Most recently, Chiraldi served as senior advisor to the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. In Washington and New York, Chiraldi gained a national reputation as a fearless reformer who emphasized the human and decent treatment of the men, women, and children under his correctional supervision. For Chiraldi, making communities safer and reducing crime necessarily means improving fairness in the system and developing opportunities in the poor communities where the crime problem is most serious. He pioneered efforts at community-based alternatives to incarceration with the Youth Link Initiative in Washington, D.C., in New York City with the Neon Network and Close to Home Program. Chiraldi received his MSW, Masters of Social Work, from NYU, New York University, and the Bachelor's of Arts degree from Binghamton University. Vincent, welcome to Texas. And I'd like to introduce Vincent Chiraldi. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction, and uh, I'd like to thank the Rothko Chapel and uh, University of St. Thomas for inviting me here today uh, to this fantastic conference that you guys are jointly hosting on ending the legacy of mass incarceration. I'd like to particularly thank Ashley and uh, David Leslie, uh, with whom I've worked closely to get this presentation to the point where it will hopefully complement the great work you've all been doing for the last two days. Um, I have a prepared remarks. I just want to prove that to you by showing it to you. But I'm going to sort of depart the text just for a moment because um, while I was coming here today, I found out that Mayor de Blasio of New York City announced the closure, yeah, the closure of the Rikers Island Jail. You know, I grew up in New York City, so Rikers is sort of this iconically evil place that 
you kind of grew up knowing about. Uh, at its peak, it had 22,000 people in it. I think, I think the maximum bed capacity was 14,000 at the time. Now it's got 9,600. So that, let's just pause over that for a second. So in the, from the mid-90s to now, it went from having uh, 22,000 people in it to 9,600. And during that time, just so you think, don't think it was a jailbreak, uh, New York became the safest big city in America, and its uh, uh, homicides went from about 2,200 down to about 300. So uh, it, it just sort of, uh, one more thing is that the campaign over the last two years was a very sophisticated campaign led primarily by formerly incarcerated people. Right? And, and, and built on a tragic story of Khalif Browder. I, I understand that there's a, uh, uh, what do you call it, simulation thing here. I'm not good at technology. It's virtual reality thing here where you can enter a solitary confinement space. Khalif was locked up. I, this is when I was commissioner of probation to my everlasting shame. I didn't know him personally because I had 30,000 people on probation. He was not locked up initially on both uh, charge of stealing a backpack, but also on probation hold. So my agency held him, uh, or the judge held him on my agency's request. Uh, and he was locked up for three years without going to trial. He just got lost in a jail at, at the age of 16, because New York, uh, the age of juvenile court jurisdiction, ends on your 16th birthday. So he was an adult. At the age of 16, he was locked up for three years, almost two of which he spent in solitary confinement. And if you go to the New Yorker uh, magazines online, they actually have photograph, pictures, uh, video from, from Rikers of Khalif being abused by guards and by, uh, by correctional officers and by, by other kids in the facility. It's, it's, it's a hair-raising thing to see. Uh, and then so out of the three years he was there, and he never went to trial during that three years, ultimately the case was dismissed against him, uh, even though I had been offered several times to plead guilty and walk out. He could have left and pled guilty, but he was like, nope, I didn't do it, I'm not pleading guilty. So he was there for three years, two of them he spent in solitary confinement, and then about a year after he got out, he committed suicide. So I'm gonna dedicate this to Khalif Browder, and, and I think we can dedicate the closing of Rikers Island to Khalif Browder too, because I, I think probably. So I'm going to talk a little today about juvenile justice, and, and there again is some hopeful stories, some amazing reforms that have been made in that area, some of the challenges that still remain, and, and some lessons I believe we can take from the juvenile justice example to extend to much needed reforms in the adult criminal justice system. The National Institute of Justice recently published the uh, report you guys have all on your seat there uh, that I co-authored with Patrick McCarthy and Miriam Shark from the Annie Casey Foundation. And in the report, we brought together the best and latest research on the impact of America's 170-year experiment with juvenile reform schools or training schools, what we call youth prisons, in the report to avoid euphemizing them, and concluded that we should close all of our youth prisons and replace them with a range of in-home community programs. And for the few kids who need to be locked up, small, home-like facilities close to their home communities. So to be sure, some kids need secure confinement, but far, far fewer than today and for much shorter periods. And secure confinement does not mean we should be locking kids up in facilities that in all but name are virtually indistinguishable from prisons. 
from that deep end of the system all the way back to the front end, it's time to replace our approach with a community-based youth development-oriented system that does what it's meant to do. Hold kids who have broken the law accountable and help them get back on track. No one who's spent any length of time in these places could possibly walk away without a deep sense that these institutions are factories of failure. Now we also have decades of hard evidence that they not only don't do good, but they do real and lasting harm. And we have choices. Thanks to so many people like the people in this room, we have experience and evidence of alternatives that work so much better and lessons learned about how to overcome challenges and achieve really impressive results. Finally, I've rarely seen the alignment of so many interests all at once. This is a public policy trifecta. Closing youth prisons is good for the community, for community safety, good for kids, and a good public investment both now and in the nation's future. The public recognizes this. Polling conducted by the Pew Charitable Trust, the Casey Foundation, and Youth First tell us that most Americans and even most crime victims want to see youth help to get back on track. Yes, they want to see them held accountable, but they don't support the harsh conditions that too many kids are subjected to in these youth prisons. The youth prison model has been in place for a long, long time and was a failure from the beginning. Back in the 1840s, reformers thought that these new institutions, so-called training schools, would help reform kids by scooping up mostly Irish and Eastern European kids who were running the streets while their parents worked long hours in sweatshops and factories. In a move that really marked a break from the ascendancy of the family as the primary caregiver in favor of the state, these young people, then and now, would be taken from their parents and the state would act in loco parentis, literally in the place of the parents, by administering these benign sounding facilities that were in our prisons in all but name. Not coincidentally, then as now, otherness of the kids, differences. Then Catholicism, now them being black and Latino, helped the dominant power structure justify this approach. But they were wrong. We know for a long time from experience and increasingly lately from science that both youth prisons and adult prisons provide pretty much the opposite of what kids need for their social, emotional, neurological, and educational development. Young people are heavily influenced by peers. In fact, one of the strongest predictors of delinquent behavior is having a social circle dominated by delinquent peers. Youth prisons and adult prisons that incarcerate youth create intense peer relationships among young people, all with a history of breaking the law. Rather than becoming schools for reform, they become schools for crime. One study we looked at in a report by a group of researchers from MIT used the random selection of judges, because you can't randomly select kids to go to prison and not to go to prison, right? And so it's really hard to say what are the impacts of incarceration, because people always argue, well, of course they come out worse, they went in worse. But judges are, kids are assigned to judges in many jurisdictions randomly. And the MIT uh, researchers use that random assignment to look at outcomes because some judges are much harsher than other judges. And so you could actually see very similarly situated kids randomly assigned to different judges, who, some, who, some of whom got incarcerated and some of whom went home with services. Uh, and what they found up uh, probably won't surprise anybody who's been to one of these places. They, they literally used the word criminal capital to describe how youth who were locked up 
had higher rates of income from crime post-release than similar youth who got retained in the community. They dubbed this phenomenon a school of crime, and they compared it to social capital that you get when you go to college. So you go to college and you come out with social capital, you go to youth prisons and you come out with criminal capital. Research in Florida and New York and New Jersey revealed similar outcomes for kids tried as adults. In both studies, researchers carefully matched youth who had committed similar offenses and had similar prior records and even came from similar environments to see what the impact of putting youth into adult courts and adult facilities was. Both studies found that youth tried as adults were more likely to get arrested, get arrested more quickly, and get arrested for more serious offenses than youth retained in a juvenile system. Looking at all the relevant data on trying kids as adults, the Centers for Disease Control found that young people tried as adults were 34% more likely to be rearrested than those who were kept in a juvenile justice system even when you controlled for relevant factors. So why would placement in a youth or adult prisons worsen the outcomes of young people? Well, developmentally, young people this age are highly malleable and more susceptible to peer influence. They need positive interactions with supportive adults to help them build self-esteem and self-confidence and a peer group that models pro-social behavior. By the way, this is what your kids need too, right? This is why you have them associate with positive adults and you at least try to have them associate with positive peers. Instead, imprisonment pits youth against one another and against adults in a constantly escalating struggle over power and control. Young people need opportunities to develop impulse control, judgment, future orientation, and emotional maturity. They do this by making mistakes and learning from them, realizing they can do better, and that by making bad choices but understanding they are not bad people. Instead, imprisonment offers rote and mindless control, reinforces the most negative aspects of their developing personalities and character, and helps them solidify their identity as convict. So we can't be all that surprised when we see the dismal results these institutions produce. Recent advancements in brain science and developmental psychology have given us greater understanding, but we didn't really need that knowledge to tell us that this approach wasn't working for anybody. Youth prisons don't help kids get back on track. Recidivism rates of 70 to 80% are potent evidence, and recent studies that we cite in the report tell us that incarceration may actually increase recidivism. And we spend an enormous amount of money to get this result. This approach is not friendly to public budgets. With annual costs per kid that the Justice Policy Institute estimates at nearly $150,000 per year, $130,000 per kid per year in Texas. This approach is not good for our nation's future. The experience pushes kids further off the pathway to success, leaves too many of them permanently derailed and unlikely to find their way back and looking at a lifetime of living on the margins. Some of the more sophisticated research we cite in a report shows higher rearrests, higher school failure, exacerbated mental illness, and lower employment prospects for youth who are institutionalized. Often it marks the beginning of a life trajectory characterized by trips to jail and prison, a feeder system into adult incarceration. One of the concerns I've always had about the way damage done by these places is experienced by the public and by policymakers is that it's experienced idiosyncratically rather than systemically, leading to piecemeal decisions like firing this facility administrator or that department head, but leaving the essential nature of the youth prison intact. 
So there'll be a flare-up in Texas or a flare-up in California. Something will happen in New Jersey. And the people in those jurisdictions think, what's wrong with this department head or this administrator or these kids? But rarely, because we don't experience them systemically, do we say, what is wrong with the youth prison model? So then what happens is we get activated, right? The Justice Department sues. The governor impanels a commission. Uh, and after often temporary fixes and short-term attention have waned, the cycle of scandal, abuse, and cries for reform returns. This is what prompted our call for the country's leaders to move entirely away from the youth prison model. The Andy Casey Foundation has been tracking institutional abuses for a long time, and it confirms our worst fears that these kinds of deplorable conditions are endemic rather than episodic. For example, in 2008, the Associated Press surveyed every agency in America overseeing youth in confinement. From 2004 to 2007, the AP found 13,000 allegations of physical or sexual abuse in facilities housing 46,000 youth. So that's about one allegation of abuse for every three or four kids in custody. And it's likely that that's an undercount since youth notoriously underreport abuse in facilities for fear of staff reprisal or, or fear of garnering a snitch label. In 2012, a Justice Department survey of youth in custody revealed that one in eight youth in confinement reported being sexually assaulted in the year preceding the survey. It's a stunning, stunning number. In 2015, the Casey Foundation found serious abuse, sexual assaults, and the unbridled use of solitary confinement have been documented in over 30 states in just the last decade and in all but five states since 1970. This is hardly a historical artifact. Last month, the ACLU and the Juvenile Law Center filed a suit against the two remaining facilities in Wisconsin, which I'm now serving as an expert on in which nearly one in five incarcerated youth in Wisconsin is in solitary on any given day. And for the one hour they have out of their cells each day, they're often handcuffed through a belly chain to a desk. One of those places with systemic abuse was the Washington, D.C. Department of Youth Rehabilitations, a department I ran from 2005 to 2010. When I took over in Washington's DC's Juvenile Justice Agency then in 2005, I was the 20th director of that department in the 19 year span of a lawsuit over conditions in the facility. The place, even after 19 years of court, court oversight, was a Dickensian nightmare. Just in the year prior to my arrival, there were actually four different directors. The DC Inspector General and the plaintiffs both conducted inspections just prior to my arrival. What they found was so bad that it prompted plaintiffs to make a motion for the judge to put the department into receivership, which would have meant that the court would have actually taken over running the department, a motion that was pending when I took over. Staff were routinely beating youth. Kids were locked in their cells for so long without respite that they often urinated or defecated in them, which is a completely humiliating experience for young people. The physical plant at this place had deteriorated badly after years of neglect. At night, youth would take their shirts off and stuff them around cracks in the room to keep the rats and cockroaches from crawling on them. If young people were in rooms that were close to the boilers, they would be in dangerously hot rooms, especially if they were on psychotropic medication or if they had asthma. 
If they were far away from the boilers, the rooms were frigid. When we took over, we discovered even more Kafkaesque conditions that plaintiffs and I and the inspector general hadn't. One staff member was so regularly selling drugs to the youths that they tested positive for marijuana more frequently after they had been in my facility for a month than they were testing on the way into the facility, which meant that it was easier to score drugs in my facility than on the streets of the District of Columbia, which is a pretty low bar to jump over, I want to tell you. <laughs> Once our investigative process gained some credibility, we began to, began to uncover rampant sexual assaults and pressuring by staff of both youth and other staff. One teacher who had been at the facility when she was a girl, uh, she was now a teacher, uh, told me that she had been sexually assaulted by a staff member that we continued to currently employ uh, all these years later. One of the staff members married a youth two weeks after he was released from custody. New female staff found out quickly that if they didn't perform sexually for their supervisors, they might find themselves in compromising positions with the youth with nobody coming to help them. One example for me summed up the dismal and dangerous correctional environment we had. A staff member, I'll call him Stephen, who was reportedly part of a goon squad that reg regularly attacked unruly youth, viciously beat up two children in front of more than a dozen youth and staff to send a message as to who was in charge of the facility. After the beating, he placed the youth in hand and leg irons and dragged them through a mud puddle prior to depositing them in the infirmary. The infirmary nurses reported the incident and the two youth confirmed that their abuse, uh, confirmed their abuse and named Stephen as their assailant, which was very rare due to the cultural taboo against snitching. Even more unusual, one of the many staff, who I'll call James, who witnessed the assault, confirmed the youth's story and independently named Stephen as their abuser. So we placed Stephen on administrative leave with pay as we investigated the accusations a process, a process which, with protections afforded to union worker, workers, took about a year. We were trying to terminate them. During that time period, the boys were returned to the community and moved on with their lives. Meanwhile, James was harassed so much by his fellow youth correctional officers that we had to transfer him several times for his own safety, ultimately putting him on desk duty. By the time Stephen's case came to arbitration, the two boys were very reluctant witnesses whose testimony was viewed as unreliable. They had moved on with their lives. They didn't like testifying in the first place. Unfortunately, many children who do not have much, many, many times children do not have much credibility in the eyes of arbitrators. The nurse's testimony was fine, but they, they, you know, they indicated that the boys' claims matched their bruising, but they hadn't witnessed the actual beating and couldn't identify Stephen as the assailant. Meanwhile, James was so frightened by his year of torment at the hands of his fellow staff that his testimony came off as untrustworthy. For the defense, several staff testified to Stephen's fine character. He was reinstated with back pay, and we settled with him for an exorbitant amount so that he did not return to work with children. We essentially bought him off to get rid of him. Of course, youth confinement is not distributed equally throughout society, but rather falls disproportionately on kids of color. Youth prisons perpetuate our society's deeply ingrained ways of depriving youth of color of opportunity. Nationwide, youth, youth of color are incarcerated at nearly three times the rate of white youth. Black youth are incarcerated at nearly five times the rate of white youth, Native American youth at about three times the rate, and Latino youth at about double the white rate. In Texas, African American youth are incarcerated at four times the rate of white youth, 
in 2013 and Latino youth at 1.3 times the white rate. To your credit, both disparities have narrowed significantly since 1997. You still have a ways to go. Unfortunately, as the number of youth in locked custody nationally has declined by about half between 2001 and 2013, so that's good news, disparities have grown slightly during that time. Even after controlling for legally relevant factors, researchers have found that race effects, evidence of unwarranted racial disparities not explained by factors such as offense severity and prior record uh, in the juvenile justice system. A meta-analysis of 46 studies of youth justice processing and minority status revealed that two-thirds of the studies showed racial disparities at one or more points in the system that couldn't be explained by current offense or risk. One blind analysis of probation reports found that probation officers were more likely to ascribe the behavior of black youth to personal failings and the behavior of white youth to external environmental factors beyond the youth's control. Again, even controlling for criminal behavior and prior record, probation officers in the study recommended incarceration more frequently for black youth than for white youth. When I, in the five years I ran the Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services in Washington, D.C., not one white kid was committed to my custody. So for all these reasons, our big conclusion in the paper was the evidence of failure is clear. Youth prisons fail at protecting the community, they fail at turning young lives around, they fail at being cost effective, and they fail at protecting kids from abuse. None of this is news, and it's not because these systems are populated by uniquely evil or sadistic staff. Many youth correctional administrators throughout the 170-year history of youth prisons have earnest, earnestly tried to improve conditions and make their facilities at least benign and at best rehabilitative. But none of us has systematically and consistently succeeded. Doesn't mean none of us has succeeded for a bit, for a little period of time, but these large youth prisons inevitably entropy into bedlam. Jerry Miller, the Secretary of Juvenile Justice for Massachusetts, Illinois, and Pennsylvania during the 60s and 70s, said it about as well as anybody. Jerry wrote, reformers come and reformers go. State institutions carry on. Nothing in their history suggests they can sustain reform, no matter what money, what staff, and what programs are pumped into them. The same crises that have plagued them for 150 years intrude today. Though the cast may change, the players go on producing failure. Perhaps institutional historian David Rothman explained it most simply when he wrote, when custody meets care, custody always wins. It's now an inescapable fact that youth prisons cannot be reformed. That is what leads us to our conclusion that a coordinated, well-sequenced, comprehensive approach is needed that must include closing youth prisons and reducing as much as possible the number of young people tried as adults. What we now have is an opportunity moment. We have public support, political salience spanning the aisle, and we know what to do. We also have a lot of momentum behind us. Contrary to what's happening with adults where incarceration rates have increased fivefold since the 1970s and have begun to inch down since 2009, as I said earlier, juvenile incarceration began declining sharply starting in 1999. Between 2001 and 2013, juvenile incarceration declined by 53%, down by half. 48 states during this time had double-digit juvenile incarceration declines, led by the five biggest states, California, Texas, Florida, New York, and Illinois, 
which had two-thirds reduction in juvenile incarceration. During this time, a third of all the juvenile facilities in America have closed. Two-thirds of all the facilities in America, over 200 beds have closed. So disproportionately, the large facilities are closing. Similarly, the number of kids in adult prisons has declined sharply during this time period, as has the number of young adults, uh, uh, young, I'm sorry, of young adults in, in adult prisons, kids that are 18 to 25 years old, suggesting that there's actually something going on with young adults in the U.S. that isn't going on with older adults. First, let's talk about the youth system. The number of youth under age 18 in prisons dropped by two-thirds from 2001 to 2013. Over the past decade, 50 bills have passed in 30 states to raise the age, make it more difficult to try juveniles as adults, or make it more difficult to incarcerate juveniles in adult facilities. There are only seven states left that try all youth under 18, that, that, that continue to have the age of their juvenile court set below 18, Texas obviously being one of them. All seven have legislation this year to raise the age to 18. Some of this youthification is spreading to the adult system. Cities, states, and counties are increasingly creating specialized programming for young people over the age of 18 in the adult system to borrow some elements of juvenile court processing for young adults who research is increasingly showing developmentally share lots of attributes with kids under 18. Anybody who's got a 19-year-old knows they're not that much different than 17-year-olds. Right? A report last year by the Bureau of Justice Assistance found 53 such programs around the country, ranging from specialized courts to probation caseloads, separate correctional facilities for young adults that are more attuned to their rehabilitative needs. Policymakers in four states just in the last two years have even proposed to raise the age of family court to 21, Connecticut, Illinois, Massachusetts, and Vermont. That means that over the next several years, we could very well see every state in the country have their juvenile court set at 18, with a few even having older ages of juvenile court jurisdiction. A hopeful sign is that from 2001 to 2013, the number of males age 18 to 19 in prisons has declined by two-thirds, and ages 20 to 24 has declined by a third, all while the rest of the prison populations rose slightly. So these are very exciting trends, especially for somebody who's been in it for 37 years, where for the first 34 years of it, the prison population rose every single year. The tireless work done by so many around the country delivers us to this point, with a rich and growing body of evidence and experience to rely upon in moving forward in a way that delivers on the promise of helping all our youth have a bright future while keeping our communities safe. Based on the accumulated knowledge that we research from neurobiology and psychology, to the history of institutions and their scandals and abuse, to their high cost, dismal outcomes, and racial and ethnic disparities, we recommended four strategies for policymakers to utilize to eliminate the youth prison model for good and replace it with a community-based model. Not half measures, but full fixes. So we talk about the four R's in our paper, reduce, reform, replace, and reinvest. I'll talk about each R through the lens of a jurisdiction. So let me start with the first R, which is reduce. By reduce, we mean limit commitments to the most serious offenses, develop a range of programs and services to meet varied youth needs, 
emphasizing smaller home-like settings and closed the actual youth prisons. States like Texas and California have eliminated whole categories of youth who have committed lower level offenses from being held in their state's youth prisons. Here in Texas, following a terrible, widespread and heavily publicized systemic sexual and physical abuse of kids in the state's youth prisons, your legislator acted legislature acted decisively in 2007, passing legislation that prohibited youth convicted of misdemeanors from being incarcerated in youth prisons and capping the age of confinement at 19 because the parole board was uh, frivolously extending kids' stays. They also created a block grant, a formula block grant to counties for programming and supervision, increasing funding to counties initially by 38% after the reforms were passed. All of this reduced the Texas Youth Commission population by more than two-thirds and allowed the closure of eight prisons, saving the state $150 million in its biannual budget. But this was not a jailbreak. Contrary to the popular belief, these facilities can be downsized and closed in a way that protects public safety. So there's, a, there's good research on the first six years of this, from 2007 to 2013. During that time period, we have data across both juvenile and adult incarceration and juvenile and adult arrests. So initially, Texas's reforms reduced youth incarceration by 38%, during which time there was a remarkable 49% decline in youth arrests. By comparison during that time, Texas's adult prison population only declined by 2%, while adult arrests declined by a much more modest 8%. So put another way, youth incarceration in Texas declined at 19 times the rate at which adult incarceration in Texas declined, driven by policies enacted by the legislature and signed into law by the governor, but youth arrests still declined five times as much as adult arrests did, giving the lie to the notion that we have to lock up more kids to be safe. This is serious, serious success, and Texas should be applauded for this watershed reform. The state now needs to build on its success and make sure that kids who are 17 years old when they commit their crimes have the benefit of the state's much improved juvenile system by raising the juvenile court age to 18. Every bit of evidence tells us that that's the best place for them to be. Youth in adult jails are 36 times more likely to commit suicide than youth in juvenile detention. Although they only make up 1% of all jail inmates in 2006 nationally, Young people were the victims of 13% of inmate-on-inmate -inmate sexual assaults. So back to youth prisons. It's a reasonable question to ask, can what Texas did to reduce its incarcerated youth population be done elsewhere? Well, if you look at who is incarcerated in America's youth prisons, even after a serious decline in youth incarceration, there's a hopeful answer. Nationally, almost twice as many youth are in youth prisons for nonviolent crimes, like shoplifting and theft, compared to those behind bars for violent offenses like assault and robbery. In Texas, as legislators consider raising the age of juvenile court jurisdiction to 18 this year, fully 96% of 17-year-olds who were arrested in Texas in 2013 were arrested for nonviolent and misdemeanor offenses. And of course, under the Raise the Age legislation, courts still have the ability to try youth in adult court if they believe their offenses or prior record rendered them too serious for juvenile court processing. Not that there's a bright line that says all youth convicted of nonviolent offenses should be home 
or that all youth convicted of violent offenses should be incarcerated. But our youth facilities, our squad cars, and our courts are not full of youth who have committed the kinds of crimes that scare most Americans, leaving policymakers room to reduce. Now to the second R, reform. Reform means to us reforming the way we all think of the purpose of youth incarceration. We urge doing this by limiting commitment to the most serious offenses, developing a range of programs and services to meet varied youth needs, emphasizing smaller home-like settings, and closing youth prisons. To, to look more closely at this R, let's take a look at the reforms enacted recently in the city of New York, where I was probation commissioner for, from 2010 to 2014. In New York, several youth died in custody in 2008 after particularly harsh takedowns. They called them prone restraints. And big staff would land on kids really hard, knock the wind out of them, and in two cases, killing them. The governor impaneled the Blue Ribbon Commission, and the Justice Department Civil Rights Division investigated and ultimately sued the state. Both investigations revealed atrocities, kids having bones broken and teeth knocked out for things like talking in line and swiping extra dessert from the cafeteria. The Justice Department wrote, quote, anything from sneaking an extra cookie to initiating a fistfight may result in a full prone restraint with handcuffs. This one-size-fits-all control approach has, not surprisingly, led to an alarming number of serious injuries to youth, including concussions, broken or knocked out teeth, and spiral fractures. Based on these kinds of abuses, the $250,000 price tag for youth in custody and the astronomical recidivism rates, Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bloomberg agreed to move all New York City kids who were locked up in state prisons close to home. That's the name of the bill, the transferred authority over city youth in state custody back to New York City along with almost all of the funding. So let me say that again. Instead of being housed in large facilities upstate, all kids convicted in family court who, are, who, who do lose their liberty are now either, well, all kids in New York City court that are sentenced in family court are now either home with wraparound services or are housed in small home-like facilities ranging from six beds to 20 beds run by nonprofit organizations within or very near the five boroughs. So imagine if Harris County took all of its kids out of the Texas Juvenile Justice Department, got most of the money reallocated back to the county, including putting the more serious and risky youth in small, decent facilities within the county. Imagine how much better the outcomes, how much safer that would be and how much more decent that would be for your kids. That's what's been happening in New York since 2012. Uh, importantly, this has not been a bed-for-bed -bed transfer. The number of kids in placement declining by more than half, 56%, in the four years since Close to Home was passed. So not only are they in small facilities, but half of them aren't in any facilities. They're back home. Uh, Juvenile arrests during this crime declined by 53% during the same period. That's partly because we had that $250,000, or almost that much, per kid block granted back to us so we could go out and buy the kinds of intense services that a lot of these troubled kids need. This and other reforms have also enabled New York State to close 23 youth prisons over the last several years. Now onto the third R, which is replace. In the 80s, Missouri was running two large trouble facilities where reports of widespread abuses were seeping out into the media. The state decided to close them in favor of smaller, home-like, and rehabilitative facilities. They were the real pioneers in this area. 
I've been to a lot of facilities in my 37 years, and I've never been in a group of places that is more decent, more home-like, more caring, and more rehabilitative than the ones run by the state of Missouri. They're also consistently so, not idiosyncratically so, with high-quality program across the state. Youth are now in small facilities, generally not larger than 40 or so youth, often smaller, and generally housed within 45 minutes of their home communities, often less than that. Their whole ethos is based on positive youth development approach to young people, building on their assets rather than merely focusing on extinguishing their deficits. I would encourage any of you, if you can, to try to visit the Missouri facilities that will entirely change your view of how youth corrections can be run. Now to the fourth R, reinvest. Reinvest means capturing the savings from facility closures and reinvesting them in community alternatives, evaluating those programs to make sure you're getting the biggest bang for your buck, and taking advantage of the broad public support for reinvestment. I'll tell a reinvest story through Ohio. In 1992, Ohio policymakers were faced with a crisis. Their facilities were running at 180% of capacity with all of the deteriorating conditions of care one might expect from that. Ohio, Ohio policymakers realized that the fiscal incentives around juvenile justice were all wrong. Placing kids in state-run youth prisons was free to counties, but if they wanted to keep the kid home and program them in treatment programs locally, they had to pay those costs. So it was a, a skewed fiscal incentive. This resulted in too many commitments to these free state facilities. Policymakers initiated Reclaim Ohio, providing counties with funds to program youth locally instead of sending them to youth prisons. Initially, they piloted this in several counties. It immediately reduced youth incarceration in those initial counties, while youth incarceration in the non-reclaimed counties continued to rise in the rest of Ohio. So we could definitely see it was because of this. So then they went statewide with it, and they also established something called targeted reclaim in the eight largest counties in Ohio, allocating additional funds for those counties to initiate evidence-based practices. Similar outcomes in Ohio to what you saw in Texas. A policy-driven 47% decline in the first six-year period, simultaneously with a whopping 65% decline in youth arrests. Meanwhile, the state was continuing to get tough on its adults, so that an 8% increase in adult incarceration and a more modest 32% decline in adult arrests. So put another way, Ohio cut its incarceration rate, uh, incarcerated pop youth population in half while increasing adult incarceration and experienced quite twice the decline in youth arrests as it did with respect to adult arrests. I'm not suggesting here or either in Texas or Ohio that declining youth incarceration caused youth arrests to decline. The research just hasn't been done really to prove that. But these data and the Texas data and the New York data call into question seriously the premise that has undergirded much of our nation's growth in incarceration, premised on the notion that linking, that links more people in, behind bars with more public safety. Many of these states are showing that you can have dramatically fewer kids locked up and have dramatically lower crime. And that actually is shown true in the adult system too. States that have had the higher in reductions in incarceration in adult prisons have had the best reductions in crime. So we find ourselves nationally on the doorstep of major, major reforms for juveniles, young adults, and older adults, 
and may be able to learn something about how to approach reforming the entire criminal justice system from the evidence we've learned from the juveniles. Now is not the time for half measures or incrementalism. We don't know when there will be a similar scientific policy and political alignment again. So in conclusion, I'll leave you with a few thoughts about what I think the policy implications of all this is. I'm gonna start by saying you in Texas are tremendously fortunate in that you have some of the brightest and most energetic and creative policy advocates in the country right here. It always heartens me when I come to Texas to see that while incarceration rates may be high and things may be very difficult, there's a sense of energy and commitment to chip away at mass incarceration, incarceration in ways that are big and small that will safely and effectively continue to push forward in a Lone Star State. Groups like the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and Texas Smart on Crime Coalition along with leading religious organizations like Rothko Chapel and the University of St. Thomas who convened the symposium, along with funders like the Arnold Foundation, are second to none nationally in pushing, often successfully, for criminal and juvenile justice reforms. So it's time to treat juveniles as juveniles and raise the age of juvenile court to at least 18 here in Texas and in the six other states that currently end their court's jurisdiction at 18. The evidence is clear that these young people do better in the juvenile system with all its problems and that public safety is improved when we carefully do so. Buoyed by some of that research, it's time to extend some or all of the provisions of the juvenile system, individualization, rehabilitation, and confidentiality protections while still holding them accountable to young adults 18 to 21 or even at 25 to help turn their lives around and avoid hobbling them forever for stupid stuff they do when they're young. It's time to continue to push for reforms in our adult system to make it fairer and more effective from the outset by diverting particularly those who are mentally ill and substance abusers through effective diversion programs, to bail reform by improving representation and relying more on risk assessment and less on money bail, through shorter and more intense probation terms, and I want to give a shout out to some of the excellent work done by Dr. Teresa May for the progress she's made here in reducing violations and probation uh, and improving outcomes for people on probation, to improvements in education jobs and reentry services. There are bills and efforts to improve Texas systems, Texas's system in all of these areas right now, and I encourage you all to contact the coalitions I mentioned to get involved and make a difference. And finally, it's time to eliminate the youth prisons from America's juvenile justice landscape, replacing it with a developmentally appropriate range of community programs, including small, home-like facility near kids' homes for the few who need to be held in secure care. What I saw as director of juvenile justice for our nation's capital and what our research found going on frequently around the country is a national scandal. It's time for that to end because it's in our enlightened self-interest to do so, because when our young people are rehabilitated, it saves us money and keeps us all safer from harm. But here in this beautiful house of worship, it's important to remember that this is also simply the right, decent, and moral thing to do. Thank you all for inviting me here.
So now we'll just take questions if folks have them, and then Ashley will holler at me when, it's, when time's up. Yeah, uh, we'll just wait till the microphones come to you. Oh, so we got, okay, great. Hi there. Could you stand? I don't think, okay, it is on. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak to, to what do you owe um, the downturn in mass incarceration, maybe not only for youth, but for adults as well. I mean, you, you spoke about, in the youth context, the declining number of arrests, um, but there also seems to be this shift in political will when you spoke to the youthification trends at the state legislative level, because, I mean, presumably being tough on crime is still politically expedient, though misguided. So, yeah, if you would be willing to speak to that. Sure. So a couple of factors I'd, I'd point to. Um, the, uh, uh, this had a real salience as a political issue in the 90s and the 80s and 70s, frankly, uh, in ways that it stopped having because at a certain point, the Democrats and the Republicans, you could, you could fit the difference in their platforms on crime comfortably through the eye of a needle. So, and really, I think Bill Clinton did a lot of that. He just said, look, nobody's gonna get to the right of me on crime. I'm gonna take time off from my campaign and watch a mentally retarded person get put to death. I'm gonna build more prisons than any president in the history of America. And so, at a certain point, it kind of lost its salience as a political issue. And, uh, and so now, the only reason to do it would be because it was good public policy. And I don't think really most of the people who were pushing it thought that. I think most of what happened around the growth in incarceration was political, not policy driven. Then, also since the mid-90s, crime dropped so much. So there was, there was space for people to breathe that there hadn't been before. I mean, it really was a spike in crime up to the mid-90s, and uh, that's not a good environment for sound public policy setting. So it lost its salience, crime dropped enough so that it could reduce the number of people that might be available to go to prison, but also it allowed a lot of policymakers on both sides of the aisle to maybe take a more rational view. That's, that's, that's my thought. Hi, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, first of all, thank you for your years of work. Um, I was actually just up in New York at Carnegie Hall, did this Create Justice thing where a lot of people were talking about the NEON um, program. And yeah. um, Clinton Lacey, who's in charge of DC's DJJ now, um, it was amazing to hear people in New York and Clinton Lacey from DC talk about um, these, that, that, that a youth, youth should never be in prison. <laughs> um, they should be in programs like you're talking about at at the worst case scenario. And as somebody who's from Virginia, who works with incarcerated youth um, to be amazing artists and leaders, and we train police and do all kinds of amazing things, um, we are working in a, in a context, a political context and climate, um, where even though the head of DJJ is a Soros fellow, and even though NEA Casey has been like consulting with Andy Block, who runs DJJ, the, the, the best that they're able to push for is a new 145-bed youth prison. Um, and they're closing the youth prisons, and we've been involved in those campaigns to close those. Um, but I guess I would love to just hear, um, you know, in, in a, um, a southern state like Virginia, what would your suggestions be towards pushing those legislators and communities to, to advocate for the things that really we need? Yeah, you guys got a tough road there. Uh, it, it, um you know, because you finally got, I mean, you got your guide, like the head of the juvenile justice advocacy community got the job. It was kind of like me getting a job in D.C. Um, and then 
you know, essentially cut the deal at, at 145. And, um, I, you know, I wish I had brilliant answers. I think that the campaign, as I've watched it occur in Virginia, has been brilliant. Uh, I think the advocacy has been fantastic. Uh, and I just would encourage you to keep, keep at it. I mean, two years ago, nobody, really nobody thought uh, uh, de Blasio was going to say close Rikers. And he, he resisted it. Uh, and this was the liberal guy. He, he won on a, on a progressive uh, uh, campaign. And you just kind of never know uh, when, you're, when, when you just kind of hold on and, and, and fight for the long term. You never know when, when the worm's going to turn in your direction. Uh, what, what's, what, uh, what combination of factors could suddenly uh, allow you to, 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 to see a way to victory? Um, and I think that's, for me, the biggest lesson. I mean, it was, man, and there were some years it was just... I, I was ready to chuck it, and I'm sure a lot of other people were too. It's just the population just kept going up and up all the time. There was so much human pain involved in that. It wasn't just a bunch of numbers. It was a bunch of human souls. Um, and yet here we are. We're still fighting, and now we're achieving our victory. So, I, you know, I, I love the campaign that's going on in Virginia. I've, I've, I've paid attention to it. You guys are, are very sophisticated and, and very aggressive and, and I think dogged. Uh, and I, I don't know. I have any brilliant ideas other than just keep doing what you're doing. Hi, fellow New Yorker. Hey. I'm from Legal Action Center, so you know I know you. <laughs> um, I just I wanted you to talk and thank you for sharing so much detail about your stint in D.C. and in New York. Um, and I know about all the drama and all the changes that you had to to try to do the reform and you know, kind of rebuilds the, the DC system when it was happening. And could you talk a little bit about um, some of the cultural work that you had to do mm -hmm. as the head of an agency so full of, you know, of, of, of staff that's used to working a certain way? What did that take? And did you need community support in order to get a lot of the changes that you did concerning education and treatment, everything. Yep. So, you know, I do want to say I, I came in, I had never worked in government before I, I ran that system in D.C. I was sort of a Hail Mary passed by the mayor to hire me. And um, I came in, you know, with a superior attitude as an advocate thinking that I was going to hate the staff because how could, you know, how could how could this much evil occur without the people in the facility being sort of uniquely uh, evil and wearing that on their sleeves? And I, I really left feeling very differently about it than that. It's to be sure, there were some bad apples in the place and some sadistic people who, uh, not only did I get rid of them, I actually would have liked to be able to hire them back and fire them again, you know? <laughs> um, but. That said, there were also an awful lot of people who were wrapped up in this sort of cognitive dissonance of, of trying to figure out um, how to survive in that place. They didn't come there to, to, to hurt kids. Uh, they ended up hurting kids or acquiescing to hurting kids, like looking the other way when other people did it. Um, most of those people weren't selling drugs to the kids, having sex with them, or beating them up. But everybody knew it. It was only a 208-bed facility. That's like a itty-bitty middle school. The guy can't be, everybody knew who was selling the kids drugs. Um, 
So it was a combination of things. One is we got much better at discipline. Uh, I, did, I did terminate some of the bad apples, and I think that that allowed some of the other people who were fence sitters to start to step forward and be the good people that they were. We did a massive amount of training. When I, I downsized the facility uh, to 60 beds uh, and moved, moved the kids in the community and funded a bunch of programs in the community, a really robust continuum of care, and while we were downsizing, rather than gradually downsize every unit, I closed a unit and took all the staff in that unit offline and sent them literally down to a hotel down the block with the uh, folks from Missouri. They, they had set up, some of those folks from Missouri had set up a consulting firm and they trained them for a month. And you know, those folks had never had that kind of thing. They'd been trained in how to, you know, put kids in handcuffs and lock doors and and you know, stuff like that, but they had not been trained in how to work with human beings to help them turn their lives around, and some of them were pretty good at it. They were like naturally decent people, and you know, it took a while because you know, you've been doing it a bad way for 20 years, it's not gonna be like overnight. We also got those Missouri guys in to do coaching on an ongoing basis. We did ongoing training, in, in, uh, particularly around de-escalation as part of, so we stopped doing restraint training and started doing de-escalation training Part of which, of course, was restraint, because sometimes de-escalation doesn't work and you're gonna have to restrain the kids so they don't hurt themselves, they don't hurt other kids, they don't hurt staff, but you do that after the de-escalation stuff. So staff took to that. You know, not everybody, not everybody was universally good at it. Also, we, we made it clear that everybody who worked in that facility, their job was about the kids. So that meant if you were an administrative assistant, if you were a cook, if you were a maintenance guy, you were working with kids. And those guys were pretty good at it. It was sort of interesting, you know? So now you'd come in, you'd see the administrative assistant lady sitting at the front desk, and there would be a kid there, you know, being an intern, or the, particularly the, uh, the best guy was the, uh, was the landscaper guy. He always had like four or five kids around with him there, like cutting grass and, you know, doing stuff. And uh, so, you know, once you did that, we also brought people from the city. The facility was like 45 minutes outside D.C. in Laurel, Maryland. It's kind of interesting that D.C.'s facility was in another state. And uh, we started bringing people up to the facility, and staff started to feel proud of where they worked, you know? So, like, we brought the mayor up, we brought the city council, we brought judges up, Marion Wright Edelman came up, Maya Angelou came up. And now it's like, ah, I work at a place like, I don't work at some garbage dump, you know, full of bad kids. I work at a program where we do stuff to make our, our city a better place. And people straight up started feeling that way. You could see it. And then, then we closed the facility, which to this day is still my proudest day of work ever, and opened a smaller 60-bed, really super nice facility. But we could still run a lousy program, and that's what Clinton runs now. He runs that smaller facility. We could still run it lousy. The building is not the thing. It's the culture. And now staff is much more bought into it, much more bought. And then the Missouri people helped us. What do you think is the most ideal or effective role of the media or journalists um, in advocacy work? Yeah, I mean, I, we, we had a pretty open door policy to the media. Uh, I worked very closely with this professor at Georgetown University, a law professor named Kristen Henning, uh, who's like the nation's expert on confidentiality protections. I felt that juvenile justice administrators far too often use those protections to protect us from media scrutiny, from public scrutiny, rather than 
They're not my rights. I, I don't have confidentiality rights. I'm a government official. The kids have confidentiality rights. And they can waive those rights if they want to have a voice. And so whenever a, a reporter would want to talk to a kid or a kid would want to talk to a reporter, we had an elaborate set of forms and they would have to work with their attorney and their parent before they could give consent. Because they're minors and they really can't give consent. Even the 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds who could legally give consent, we didn't tell them they could give consent. They still had to ask their mother to give consent. Um, and, uh, and then I gave the media free access. And you know, there were times I invited the media up. We, won, we were city champs in football, so I invited the media to that. We uh, performed at the Folger Shakespeare Theater in a competition, and we won. We were the best ensemble. And our, our, our Lady Macbeth was the, she was the best, uh, Lady Macbeth was the best actor. Uh, so I had invited the media to that, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. I would, I would ask the media and, but they would also sometimes just bang on my door and I was like, yep, as long as, as long as the kids are okay with talking to you, you can come in. And you know, I think the Marshall Project and the crime report right now, Rikers wouldn't be closed without the Marshall Project. They, they wouldn't be. I mean, uh, I'm not trying to take anything from away from the advocates who really worked hard. I mean, advocates were incredibly sophisticated. The mayor, the progressive mayor was demurring on closing this facility and running for re-election. And it was clear he philosophically thought it was a good thing to do. It's just politically he didn't think, you know, it was too much political capital to spend on, you know, this 9,600 people out of an 8.4 million person city, right? So he was making a political calculation. He said, all right, as long as we know what, that we just got to up our side of it and lower the other side of it. And so like he was fundraising all around the country right, because that's the mayor of New York City, it's kind of like a big national thing. They had formerly incarcerated people showing up with signs to close Rikers at fundraisers he was having in Los Angeles and Miami. And that's like, that's pretty damn good, you know, like. And the, and the media helped with all that. They did, they were right along for the ride. The, the, the founder of the Marshall Project, this guy, Neil Barsky, he, he was the first one I saw write an op-ed piece in the New York Times about this. Um, first off, I'd like to say your treatment of your facility, if you were to take that model, recently I read how we've got to stop talking about teachers and start talking about administrators. And I 100% agree um, as a parent and an advocate for kids. Far too many schools are not talking about kids. So your model that you did, if we want to look at at keeping kids out of prisons, we need to take that model and put it into schools to start with. So I applaud what you've done. I, I know that a gardener is every bit as important as a headmaster or a principal. And if you don't realize that as a headmaster or a CEO, that's your first problem. And we need to, you know, kudos to you. Um, then a couple questions. Could you make it even smaller? Yeah. Could we make it adults? Could we get micro prisons in communities where kids can walk over after school to see their parents or vice versa with kids? And then um, I feel like I had one last question. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was, um, you know, I, I don't, I, we built a too, too big a facility. In fact, if I could do it over again and had real power, um, I wouldn't have built a facility at all. I would have just refurbished stuff that already existed. Uh, that's what they did in Missouri, by the way. Like one, I think one of their best programs is the Hogan Street facility in St. Louis. It's an old Catholic school. 
right in the middle of the neighborhood. Uh, and so people are flowing in and out. You have a lot of religious community people coming in, volunteers, uh, students doing internships at the local colleges. It's a real neighborhood thing. So I tried to get it to be 40 beds, and I tried to have it be in DC. But remember, it was, it was a 208, when I was trying to convince the mayor of this, it was a 208 bed facility with 280 kids in it. So the fact that I got 60 beds, I thought, man, that was a pretty good deal. So I was like, I was, but I pushed for 40, and I pushed for it to be in DC. They had this piece of property out in Maryland, and it's just so irresistible for elected officials to not have to you know, joust with their uh, constituents. And unlike New York, there was no uprising. I was kind of doing it on my own. Um, but no, if I could do it over again, I wouldn't even build 40. Uh, like in New York City, the, the largest facility for juveniles is 20 beds. There's two of them. They've got like 160 kids left in locked custody or in some secure custody, and it's not all locked. There's two 20-bed locked facilities, and all the rest are six to 12 beds, mostly six, by the way, um, and they're not locked. They're staff, what they call staff secure, so it's staffed at such a level so that the kids don't frivolously run away from them. that the brain isn't fully formed until 25. I mean, I know that's way out there, but that's what neuroscience is telling us. So do you hear anything in your world about pushing youth detention even? I mean, uh, yeah. you do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Four states are, are uh, attempting to raise the age to 21 right now. Um, the neuroscience, by the way, doesn't seem to resonate all that heavily with elected officials. Not, they just think it's mumbo jumbo. Um, other stuff does though, so that's good. I mean, that, everybody can relate to the 19 year old son that's sleeping in the basement, uh, or anybody with a 19 year old son sleeping in the basement can, res can resonate with that. Also, the notion that there are many other areas of law. Like some people are like, well, wait a minute. Oh, all of a sudden now you're not a real adult at 18. Or what, where's it going to end? It's like, well, wait a minute. It's, it's already started in other areas. I mean, you can't drink alcohol until you're 21. You, can, you can't really rent a car until you're 25. You can stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26. There's plenty of places now that are starting to say you can't smoke cigarettes until you're 21. And to me, the insurance, driving insurance, and car rental is super interesting. Right? Because no politician made those decisions. You know who made those decisions? Actuaries, right? They advised their companies and said, these kids are bad bets. Don't let them rent cars. Hertz wants my son's money, right? And the only reason they don't take my son's money is because he's statistically a bad bet. Not individually, he's never had an accident and never had a speeding ticket. But he's 24, and they're gonna wait till he's 25 before they'll let him rent a car. Uh, take the microphone. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, so I'm an architect. About what? An architect, and I've been working in affordable housing for 20 years in Houston. And it's taken us that long to really understand what a good affordable housing building is. And you're right insofar as the building is just the place, but the people are actually the ones who administer the services. And if they're not doing it well, forget it, not going to happen. But there is an aspect to architecture, and you're talking about it, about size. And, and you've learned this. And so I, I, would, I would hope that you would not um, discount what you've learned about the architecture of juvenile help mm -hmm. and, and talk about that to the public as well, making sure yeah. that they understand it can't be bigger than, it can't do. Yep. You know, 
I, I just ask you to do that. Yeah, no, I think, that, I think you're right about that. I think the size stuff matters so much, not just in the juvenile facilities. When I was in New York, we, you know, you mentioned the neons, right, earlier, and these are these neighborhood offices we created. So my, you know, we had 30,000 people on probation. That meant, like, in my biggest office, which was Brooklyn, 8,000 people reported to my Brooklyn office four times a, a, a month, right? That's how often you got to report. So I had 32,000 people flowing in and out of this place. It was a house of pain. Everybody was dehumanized. Right? The, the staff at the front, late, like right, right from the second you walk in, like the, 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 the guards making you go through the uh, magnetometers and the, and the receptionists were mean people, you know, because there just was too many people for you to not be mean to. You couldn't make it personal, right? And so... So we started busting it up and saying, let's, let's open small neighborhood offices that feel more like a nonprofit organization than some big castle-like uh, bureaucracy. And so, you know, we opened up in Brownsville first. We, we did 14 total by the time I left in the 14 neighborhoods in which most people on probation live. We took two-thirds of my caseload that were low risk and put them on a sort of home reporting. You don't even have to come in, right? So two-thirds are gone right away, right? And then the medium and high-risk ones, some of them still went to the central office, but, but now in 14 neighborhoods, they were going to a neon, right? So the Brownsville neon had like 168 people going there. That's how many people went there. And I remember this fight I had with my staff, my, about, my unions, about having a security officer there. Because these security officers were these old guys, right? They didn't, they didn't have guns. And my staff actually had guns. I'm like, so I gotta pay money for some guy without a gun to protect a whole bunch of people with guns? And they were like, look, Vinny. But you know, my, my union guy, he was, a reason, he was a reasonable guy, he said, look, Vinny, I'm, I'm letting you get away with a lot here. I need the security officers. I said, all right. Then he wanted magnetometers. I said, absolutely not, because there's a whole bunch of nonprofits already in these. I, I put us into buildings with a bunch of nonprofits. Nobody had a magnetometer. I was like, there's no way we're doing that. So we compromised on wands. I said, all right, I'm going to give you this, right? But I'm going to tell you right now, these, these guards are going to be useless. And in a month, they're not going to know, even know what those wands are. Because pretty soon, 169 people, you're Bob, right? You're, Ro you're Richard. You're, you're Mary. You're not some nobody. And sure enough, I see these guys now, they're like Sudoku experts. They sit there, with, it's like the barbershop, and everybody's kind of hanging out, and like, hey, where's the wand, by the way? Because people are just walking in and out. It's like, oh, I don't know. We used to have the wand around here someplace. And actually, it's not so bad, because they're like greeters. They're kind of like greeters. We changed their uniforms, so they're not dressed like guards anymore, they like have khaki, khaki pants and collared shirts. And I actually kind of like them. They're like grandpas here, you know? And, and, the, and the kids kind of relate to them and stuff, so it's... It's not bad, but I think, and I, so I think part of that is design, but part of it is also, and design, we, we had architects help us design that whole thing. That whole thing, there's banks of computers, there's signage that's encouraging but not humiliating, not that like cat going for the ball of spring garbage, right, because they don't like that. Um, and, uh, and, but the, the size now is, is, is small enough, and the design and training that you can humanize people. So I, I don't think the design could do that all by itself. I don't think the training could do that all by itself. I think there's a combination of things. I think the design of, of the New Beginnings place that we built was fantastic. I just wouldn't do it that way. But the fact that it's smaller and, and much more humane, it's more like a college campus than it is like a real home, 
the new begin the 60-bed facility, uh, the design made a huge difference. In fact, I've, I've given presentations to several architectural organizations about it. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you all for your questions, and I'd like you to, to join me in thanking Mr. Chiraldi one more time. So now I'd like to invite you all into the plaza to, to continue this conversation with each other and with Mr. Chiraldi, and we'll see you back tomorrow morning at 8.15 for breakfast on the plaza. And beginning at 9, we'll have a meditation and a discussion with Anthony Graves. So we look forward to seeing you all then.